Take your Bibles and turn with me once again to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to close out 1 John 2 and we're going to get into the first three verses of chapter 3 this morning. I have told you before that the chapter and verse divisions came way after the books of the Bible were written. And sometimes, you know, those of us that are reading here and now, we don't know what the folks were thinking about when they put the books of the Bible together and they put those chapter and verse divisions in there. Because sometimes it kind of leaves us a little puzzled. And you think that maybe they shouldn't have put the chapter division right there at the end of verse 29. They could have extended it on down to John's, where John completes his thought for that passage in verse 3. But anyway, we have before us uh, another tremendous passage for us to dive into and feast upon. So I hope you're spiritually starving for the meat and potatoes of the Word of God. Last week, when we looked at 18 through 27, we talked about Christians and Antichrist. We talked about how there is going to be one, uh, one day a final Gentile world leader who will be under the power of Satan and will exercise the plan of Satan in trying to rule the world. He will be unsuccessful in that. The devil is a defeated foe. He was defeated when Jesus Christ died upon the cross and rose again three days later. But until the day that Satan and his demons are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, he and his demons roam about like roaring lions seeking whom they may devour. And they are influencing the world with that Antichrist spirit. The Antichrist spirit is running rampant in the world and we, we see it in the worldview that is propagated, that is taught to our children from, the, from kindergarten even through college. And the entertainers now glorify occult practices. Just yesterday I learned of two more. I mean, there's a cartoon that's coming on the TV station FX called The Little Demon. And the main character is a girl who's possessed by a demon. Her father is the devil, so that makes her the Antichrist coming to you this fall. There's also a video game called The Cult of the Lamb that not only glorifies the occult, but educates and indoctrinates the players in occult practices. Man, the devil's working hard. He is working hard because he knows his time is short. And so we know this, and we, we, we know this, we see this in the world around us, and we compile that with the hardships of everyday life. And we come to the text that we have today. We come to this text that we have today where the passage today speaks of the Christian hope. That's the title of our message this morning, the Christian hope. And so look with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. And I'm going to read down to verse 3 of chapter 3. These are the words of God. And now, little children... Abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know him, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we shall be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. 
Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what, shall, what we shall be. But we know that. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Let us pray. Father, in the time that we have remaining together, that is dedicated to the feasting upon your word, Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, help us through the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Give us the capability now to understand and to discern these words that were written many years ago to help us to understand and to apply them to our lives. Give us hearts to receive. Give us wills to obey. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Of those three frequently discussed subjects, faith and love get talked about more than anything else, while hope usually gets put on the back burner. Yet like faith and love, hope is not only a fundamental biblical concept, it is one that every Christian needs to understand. Every, need, every Christian needs to get an understanding in order to experience and understand the richness and the significance so that we can have a right perspective regarding this life and the one to come. The concept of hope is equal to that of going into a dark room and turning on a bright, blazing light. Hope illuminates one's outlook. Hope uplifts the soul and produces joy in the heart. Hope introduces life and joy into this sin-cursed and death-filled world. The psalmist writes in Psalm 146, verse 5, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You know, I've said this many times. I pity the poor unbeliever that is without hope. Though they may have wealth, they may have stuff, they may think they have everything they need and want, they're truly in spiritual poverty. And I don't understand how anyone can exist in this world without the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed and one which enters within the veil. Unbelievers do not have that anchor. They do not know the advantages and the privilege that true hope brings. They spend their time and their talent and their effort. They spend everything, all of their resources, chasing pleasures filled with false hope, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, materialism, surface-level relationships, and a man-centered desire for a better future. All of those things are the complete opposite of the Christian hope. And if they're the complete opposite of the Christian hope, then they are of the devil. And anything that the devil offers is not what it seems. The devil can never make good on the promises that he floats out, 
on the promises that he propagates. They're all nothing but a spiritual mirage that vanishes when this life ends. Hope is defined as confident expectation. Biblical hope is not a wish. We're not wishing that one day we're going to go to heaven. We're not wishing that one day Jesus is going to return. Biblical hope is an absolute future reality guaranteed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So now let's look at the hope that is contained within the passage. Five verses. So our outline has five points. We're going to see a persistent hope, a perceptive hope, a phenomenal hope, a personified hope, and a pure hope. First, the persistent hope. Look what it says in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So look at that, that, those first two words, and now. That causes us to look back because and now, kind of, it, it takes me back to what Brother Haywood said when he preached from Hebrews on, uh, at homecoming. Wherefores and therefores. When you come to a phrase like those, it causes you to look back. Look back to the previous statement. For why? Now, because of something else that was previously written, now going forward. So look what it says, verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. That's the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, the believer, you should. You must abide in him. If you are in Christ right now, you are a new creature. Created in Christ Jesus. And right now, we must live like it. He goes on, he says, little children, the term of endearment. By now, if you, you've realized, John uses this a lot. It's a term of endearment to all the people that he's writing to. It's to this is to all believers at every level of spiritual maturity. He says, and now little children abide in him. We talked about that last week, meaning to continually dwell. To abide in Him means to walk in the Spirit. This means to fill your hearts and your minds with Scripture in order to obey Christ in all things. To bring every thought captive into, into the obedience of Christ so that you will do all things to the glory of God. To abide in Christ means to say no to the world, to say no to the flesh, to say no to the temptations of the devil and say yes to Jesus. I want to give you three words with regard to abide. Three words to, with regard to abiding in Christ. To abide in Christ means to remain. To remain in Christ. It means to not run about to and fro with every little thing that you hear. Hey, this sounds good. Now I'm going to go believe this. No, to abide in Christ means to remain in Christ. Abide in Christ means to also rest. So we remain and we also rest. Rest in Christ. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Inside the hope of the, the Christian hope, abiding in that hope is rest. Being in this broken and sin-cursed world is tiring. It's wearisome. Some of you who have been walking with the Lord longer than I have know that better than I can say, know it better than I can verbalize. The devil does not stop his onslaught of attacks the longer you work with the, the longer that you walk with the Lord, does he? Does he does he let up? No. 
The object, the objective of the enemy is to get believers out of the fight. Get believers sidelined. So we rest in Christ. We remain, to abide means to remain in Christ, and it means to rest in Christ, and it also means to rely. Rely upon Christ. Rely upon the Lord Jesus and not upon our own abilities or anything else in the world. So how do we do it? How? We're told to abide, but how do we abide? I want to give you a few things. First, abide in his word. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Abide in his word. Some people say, well, I, 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 just, I, just, I just let my mind, especially with these people that are of the Pentecostal nature, they talk about letting their, letting their minds go. And letting their minds go in order, to, in order to try to speak in tongues. God does not want us to do that. He wants our minds consistently and continually filled with Him. Filled with His Word. So abiding in Christ means to abide in His Word. Let His Word take root of you. Become part of you. Wash over you. The second thing is to abide. How do we abide in Christ? Is to abide in prayer. Abide in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17 says what? Pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you walk around with your eyes shut praying all the time. You're going to get hurt. It means keeping that constant prayer conversation throughout the day. It means not giving up on things no matter their circumstances. It means to pray continually. And sometimes it takes something more than just now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Sometimes it takes getting away from the world, shutting everything off and getting away from everything and everybody but you and the Lord and to hunker down and to settle in and to pray through all distractions and cry out to God. If you were here with us a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we did that. We cried out to God for almost an hour. And you know what that does? It usually leaves you yearning to do it more. So we abide in the word and we abide in prayer. We also abide in worship. How to dwell in Christ? Abide in worship. And everything that you do, you do it to the glory of God and you see it as an act of worship. So we abide in his word, we abide in prayer, we abide in worship, and we abide in the church. Can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. And we heard testimony this morning of how important it is to be a part of a Bible-believing church. Because that's how you experience and feel, actually feel the love of God is when His children are concerned about you. When His children circle the wagons and want to make sure that you're all right. So you abide in his church. And now look, look what it says. When he shall appear, when he shall appear, when he is manifested, when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When the Lord Jesus returns, there's going to be two types of people. There's going to be two types of people right there. It says in the text, those who have confidence, those who have shame. Those who have confidence and those who shrink away in shame. Those who have confidence are those who abide in Christ. 
But those who have shame refers to those who merely just profess to know Christ, but they don't possess Christ. We were introduced to some of them back in chapter 1. Look what it says back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. Those that are of that nature, that, that put on the show, that profess but don't possess, that, that talk the talk, but they do not walk the walk, there is no evidence in their life that they have truly been born again are those that when He appears, when He appears to them, either by them going to Him by way of the grave or Him appearing when that eastern sky splits, they're going to shrink away in shame. They're going to shrink away in shame. But those who have, that have confidence, they've got evidence. There's evidence. And because of that, they have hope, that abiding hope, that persistent hope. Point number two, look what it says in verse 29. We see the perceptive hope, perceptive hope. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Jesus is righteous. He is the sinless son of God. He is God, the son, the second part of the Godhead. He has all of the attributes that every other part of the Godhead has. Good, just, holy, loving, kind, omnipotent, omniscient. I'm not present. All of it. And he is definitely righteous. But think about that statement. If you know. How do we know? How does a person know that Jesus is righteous? If you truly have been born again. If you have seen the filthy unrighteousness of your sin in light of his pure, holy law and Christ has washed away your sin with his righteousness, then you know he's righteous. From the second you were first convicted of your sin, you knew he was righteous. And now when you sin and you feel that conviction, you feel the conviction that you do because he is righteous. Jesus is righteous. He can only do righteously. He can only act righteously. When he saves a person, they are declared righteous. And listen to this. They cannot continue to practice unrighteousness. Stumble? Yes. Be tempted? Yes. Continue to abide in it? No. The Holy Spirit will not let them. A person can say they love Jesus all they want, they can smile all they want. They can do all the good deeds that they want. But if they do not repent and forsake of all of their sin, they're not of Christ. Jesus saved people to deliver them from the penalty of their sin and from the practice of it. He didn't suffer and die to sanctify sin. And a person can, can not come through the narrow gate carrying baggage you got to check them at the door. You have got to leave them behind. You do not get to bring your pet sins and think that Christ is just going to somehow overlook them. That's not true repentance. That's not true saving faith. A person must forsake all. Forsake it all and leave it all behind and come all the way through the narrow gate and plant both feet on the other side. I talked about this Wednesday night. I used this analogy. Those doors right there. 
If I want to get to my car, I'm just presenting that one's not here. If I want to get to my car, I have to go through those doors to get to my vehicle. It's not enough to say, yeah, my vehicle's on the other side of those doors. It's not enough to watch other people go through the doors. It's not enough for me to get all the way up to the, to the door and stick my head through and look around. No. If I want to get to the other side of that, I have to go all the way through. And that is what Jesus says. We must come all the way through. In a suitcase, and, and, and you think about this, if I were to somehow just be strong enough to put one of those pews across my back, I'm not going to fit through that door. You do not go through the narrow gate carrying sin. It must be forsaken and it must be left behind. And so the text says that if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So we know that he is righteous and we know that everyone that practices righteousness. If you know him, then you know his people. If you know him, then you know who belongs to him. You can tell who is walking in the footsteps of Jesus, not by the perfection of their life. Listen to me, not by the perfection of their life, but by their practice. You see the consistency. The same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, if they belong to him, is going to live inside of them as well. And when the two of you meet, the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit and lets you know, hey, we're brothers. Or we're brother and sister. We are related. So the believer has a perceptive hope. A believer has a perceptive hope. It is a hope that knows Jesus and it's a hope that knows his family. And it's also a perceptive hope that knows right from wrong. Because you know that he is righteous, you will know if and when you are about to do or say something that you have no business doing. It's a perceptive hope. It's a hope that lets you know, stop, do not continue ahead, put on the brakes, make a U-turn. It's a perceptive hope. Point number three, it's a phenomenal hope. Look what it says, chapter three, verse one. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. John is amazed. I mean, when you read this, you can almost feel the excitement just burst off the page. John is amazed. He is astonished. He has had his mind blown trying to understand the indescribable love that God has for the believer. How about you? Do you have that same amazement? If you're saved, does it blow your mind that the God who created heaven and earth that set the stars in their places that spoke every mountain into existence with the sound of his voice, planned and purposed and designed how you would come to faith in his dear son. Does that blow your mind? Does it amaze you that God would send Christ to suffer and die for your sins? Psalm chapter 139 verse 17 says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I've talked about this before many times. This is how we have victory in the here and the now. When we get to heaven, 
We're going to have brothers and sisters that you won't even be able to number from every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, every nation, black, white, green, yellow, fat, skinny, not so skinny. It's not going to matter. We're going to have family that you cannot even number. Christ died to save them. But if you're a member of the church, he died to save you. He died to save you. Does that blow your mind? It should. It should absolutely just leave you speechless. How, oh God, could you be merciful to such a wretched soul like me? John 3.16, I remember... One of the first sermons I ever preached in this church when I was uh, filling the pulpit was John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Who loved? God did. Who did He love? He loved the world. How much did He love it? He loved it so. That so means an immeasurable amount. He so loved it. And what did that love cause Him to do? It caused Him to give. What did He give? He gave His only begotten Son. He gave the very best that He had to do what? To die. Why? So that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in that son shall not perish but have everlasting life. And John realizes this. John was so overcome with wonder by the fact that sinners by divine grace can become children of God. God loves his church. God loves believers with a love that is impossible to put into human language. It is foreign to normal human understanding and experience. And you think about all the loves in the Bible. God, God's agape love, that love that gives, that love that gives, not because the person that's receiving it deserves it, but pure simply because he chose to love. God's love was not influenced by anything or anyone. It was all of God's holy, sovereign choice. God loves because God is love and God chose to love. Let's read 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to uh, get into, I'm going to read verses 8, 9, and 10. We'll get to it eventually. It says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love toward God. In this was the uh, manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God displayed his love. He proved his love when he sent Christ. Herein is love, not that we love God. That love that was extended toward you was not because you loved God. When God saved you at that time, you did not love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be that propitiation for our sin. John MacArthur writes, such love seeks at a great cost to itself, but only to give freely and spontaneously for the benefit of another, even if that person is not worthy of receiving it. Barry talked this morning, right before Sunday school ended, about not being worthy to even put your hand on the Bible. None of us are. None of us are worthy enough to come in here. None of us are worthy enough to open His holy, sacred word. None of us are worthy enough to bow our head and cry out to Him. But He is merciful because He is love. And look what it says in the text. John's mind is, is, is blown. He says, Behold, what manner of love is this that the Father hath bestowed upon us 
that we should be called sons of God. And then he goes on to say, therefore the world knows us not because it knew not him. We are unknown to the world. The world did not know him and the world does not know us. We are an anomaly to the world. We are strange to the world. We are peculiar to the world. In fact, let's just get right down to brass tacks. The world thinks we're stupid. The world thinks that we're just completely ignorant, that we would get up on a, early on a Sunday morning, that we would come to a building, that we would uh, sing songs that are 500 years old. We would uh, uh, close our eyes and bow our heads and pray to someone we have never visibly seen, we have never audibly heard, and we'll sit and listen to a man preach from a book that is older than the songs that we have sung. The world cannot understand why we do this. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 says that we are strangers and exiles in the world. Amen. We are. Our home is not of this world. This isn't our final destination. Man, isn't that part of the uh, blessed hope? The Christian hope. This world is not our final destination. This isn't the best that it's going to be for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 says that we are aliens in the world. You know, there's been a lot of talk about that within recent months about aliens and this and that from illegal aliens that are coming up from the border to stuff that got uh, leaked out when they opened up Area 51 and started talking about that stuff. We're the real aliens. We're the real ones that we don't have any place here. This is not our home. Our home is not of this world. Glory to God. We got a mansion just over that hilltop. We're those that hope and desire a better country, a heavenly one. Now, the world does not know us. The world does not understand us, but we should desire to have a good testimony before the world. We should desire to live so that unbelievers do not think that we're hypocrites now. In this God-hating, in this Christ-hating world, if you try to stand for truth today, they're going to call you a hypocrite. They don't know anything about the Christian faith, but if you stand for truth, you're going to be called a hypocrite. But we should not act hypocritically. We should not live for the praise of the world either. Luke chapter 6, verse 26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. It's one thing to have a good testimony before the world. It's one thing to walk a good Christian walk in front of the world, but it's another thing if the world's speaking well of you for some reason. Why would they be speaking well of you? Is it because you laughed at the off-color joke that was told? Is it because you told the off-color joke that was told? Are they speaking well of you because you live and act just like the world? Do you think, do they think well of you because you hang your Christianity on the Coat rack out there just as you leave and you pick it back up when you come back next time. We should desire as, with as much as lies within us to live peaceably with all men. But we don't sacrifice truth for peace. In a world that, is, that, that, that hates truth and loves lies, we stand for truth. People are going to hate us. They will hate us because they hated him first. And before we move on to the next point, I want to address something with regard to the world not knowing us and not desiring to 
and not desiring for the world to speak well of us. It's a sad thing, and this is one of the reasons that, that really led me to want to get the, the uh, women's conference going in the fall. Some people live, they totally live for the likes that they receive on social media. And this is especially true for women and young ladies. They need regular assurance from other people. They need people to speak well of them. They constantly post selfies, it's just pictures of themselves, and videos of themselves desiring to attract attention. They need that validation. Don't seek after validation from the world. It'll never fulfill that void. We must find our validation in the one who laid his life down for us. We must find our validation in Jesus Christ. Point four, a personified hope. Look at it again. Look what it says in uh, chapter three, verse two. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. There are two aspects to the personified hope or this manifested hope. Now, there's hope now and hope to come. There are present blessings in the here and now for the believer, in the believer's hope. We have assurance. We have assurance that the world does not have about unclear and unknown things. The believer has, has true meaning. Only the believer knows true meaning that God is the source of all things and that He is working out His eternal purpose, whether good or bad, no matter how we perceive it. God is always at work. That God gives people meaning. God gives things meaning. And the believer has hope in death. We have hope in death. We have a hope that the unbelieving world doesn't have when death happens. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death has no sting for the believer. Death has no sting for the believer. That's part of the Christian hope. That's part of the abiding hope. That's part of the persistent hope. That's part of the manifested in the personified hope that because Jesus defeated death and the grave, we have hope. When the believer dies, it's promotion. Graduation, you graduated on the glory. But then there are the future. There's the future blessings. Look what it says. It says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. Right here and now, right here and now, speaking of the, the present blessings of being a believer, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. The best is yet to come. The very best for the child of God is yet to come. 
It has not yet been manifested in its fullness. When He appears, look at this, we will be like Him. Jesus will one day appear. He's coming back. It may be 2,000 more years from now. It may be before we say the final amen in this service. But one day, He will appear. One day, He will appear. James chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that Jesus will appear suddenly. It says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's going to happen suddenly. There's not going to be John the Baptist to go before and prepare the way this time. The way is prepared. He, when he appears, he's coming suddenly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 tells us that he's going to come unexpectedly. Listen to this. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will not come, will come just as like a thief in the night. He's going to come unexpectedly. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, and I'm going to get a few out of that verse. He's going to come personally. For the Lord Himself, He's coming. He's not sending an angel. He's coming Himself. When He appears, it'll be Him. He's going to come bodily. When He appears, He's going to appear bodily. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, you remember when, when the disciples are standing and they're watching as the Lord Jesus is ascended back into heaven, the angel says, hey, what are you looking at? This same Jesus that you've watched ascend into heaven will one day descend, will one day come back in the same manner that he left. So he's going to come back bodily. And so he's going to, and he's also going to appear visibly. As we see here in this passage, we will see him. When he will, when he appears, he's going to be seen. He's going to appear dramatically. First, back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend with a shout. It's going to be a, the, the dramatics of a shout by the archangel, the trumpet blast. And then the dead in Christ are going to rise. And then that speaks to the power. He's going to come back powerfully. When he appears, the dead in Christ are going to come out of the ground. And we're going to see him. Look what it says. Verse 2. For we shall see him as he is. You won't mistake the genuine. There are people that mistake the false Christ. But when the genuine gets here, you won't make that mistake. When the real Jesus appears in the sky, people won't be left guessing. They will know immediately. And you will see him as he is, not as he once was. He will not be seen as the suffering servant. He's going to be seen as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You will not see him as he was in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will see him as he is in the book of Revelation. And it says, we will be like him. We will be, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So in order to withstand the glory of God, not only are we getting a mansion, just over the hilltop, we're going to get a new body to live in that mansion. We're going to get a new body to worship Him with. We're going to get a glorified body. As the condemned will have a new body in which to suffer for all of eternity in hell that will not perish in the torment, the believer will have a new body to serve Christ for all eternity in heaven. We'll be given glorified eyes to be able to look upon Him in all of His fullness and all of His glory. We'll be given glorified ears in order to hear Him. We'll be given glorified hearts to love Him the way that He deserves to be loved for all eternity. We'll be given glorified hands in order to cast the crowns at His feet. We'll be given glorified knees that will never wear out to worship Him upon. And some will need that glorified body just to get over the shock of heaven. 
Some will need that glorified body just to get over that shock that it won't be a silent, lifeless, and joyless like an eternal funeral. All that singing and all that shouting and all that praising and all the hallelujahs and the glory to God, some of you will need that glorified body. Otherwise, you'd die from the shock of, of it all. Some will need that glorified body just to get over the shock of all of the praising and the worship and the joy that is in heaven. We will be made like Him inside and outside. Our sinful flesh will be no more. We're going to shed it like a snakeskin. And what remains will be the intensified new creature in Christ. We'll never again be convicted of sin because there's going to be no more sin. There'll be no more temptation. We'll never have to repent again, never have to confess or feel guilty ever, ever again because we will have the sinless nature of Christ in its fullness. We will finally live as God has intended us to live. We will have pure thoughts. We will have elevated thoughts. It will be the uh, fulfillment of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is dignified, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is commendable, if there be any excellency, if there be any praiseworthy, consider, think on these things. And fifthly, and finally, there's a pure, a pure hope. Look what it says in verse 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And every man that hath this hope... Uh, Every man that has this hope in himself purifieth himself even as he is pure. This is, this is the crux of this section. This kind of sums up these five verses. The Christian life is one of hope. The hope of Jesus' return makes practical difference in the lifestyle and the behavior of the believer. Because he's going to return, that makes a difference in the life of the true believer. When our hope is fixed, when it's fixed upon him, it produces a growing desire within us to be more like Him right now. And again, it's not about perfection. It's about the practice. The Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the, the, the believer's Lord and Savior who provides the ideal pattern for holy living. Everybody wants, you know, likes to talk about who their heroes are. For some, their earthly father is their hero. But our ultimate hero should be the Lord Jesus Christ, and it should be Him that we try to pattern our lifestyle after. We're constantly, you turn the TV on, you're constantly, you know, bombarded with celebrities and the lavish lifestyles they live and ball players with their ungodly, enormous salaries that they get, 300 million, umpteen hundreds of millions of dollars just to play a game. And young people, you know, want to emulate that. Our desire should be to emulate Christ. He is the goal. He is our goal. And He's our prize. He's the goal and He's the prize. One whom that we must follow with everything we have. Just like the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. He says, I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm still being sanctified. I'm still being fashioned. I'm still being molded. I'm still being shaped more into the image of Christ. He says, I, I have not already become perfect. I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. We can't keep falling back and getting depressed and getting beat down over past sins. We're to learn from them and move forward, move on. Yes, seek with all diligence not to do it again, but don't keep crucifying yourself for past failures for how you've failed God in the past. That's what Paul's saying. Forgetting what lies ahead and reaching, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. I'm still being fashioned. I'm still being worked on. And I'm pressing on toward Christ. Ultimately, it should be said, but the believer purifies himself just as Christ is pure. That doesn't mean that we do it on our own. Rather, it means that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit does not take place unless we're practicing obedience. Unless we are practicing obedience to God, the Holy Spirit is not working upon us. When we think about heaven, and we've thought about it a lot this morning, we shouldn't be overly concerned about what it's going to be like there. We'll figure all that out when we get there. We're going to know everything we need to know about what all is in heaven when we get there. We're going to know everything we need to know about the last day on the last day. But we'll spend an eternity before Christ and never exhaust His glory in all its fullness. So our primary focus should be on being eternally shaped more into the image of Jesus. Your heavenly Father's greatest desire for your life is for you to be more like Christ. How's that working out? How's that working out for you? In your spiritual walk, are you more like Christ than you were the moment that you were converted? Are you more like Jesus than you were the day that you were saved? Do you have your focus on the temporal things of this earth that you want God to do and fix? Or is your greatest desire for yourself the same as His? When you pray to Him, is it God give me, God give me, God give me, God do for me, God do for me? Or do you pray God shape me? God mold me. Fasten me. Make me more into the, the, the servant, into the tool that you desire. God, make me more like Jesus. We're told, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's seeking Him first. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So we should be seeking to be like the pure one. And as you fix your hope, as you weld your hope on the Savior and long to be both with Him and like Him, our lives will be positively impacted toward how we live here and now. I'm going to leave you with this. Because the Lord Jesus is pure, we should want to be pure. Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 12. Don't, put your stuff, don't start putting stuff away. You ain't got to leave just yet. We're going to get out of here in just a minute. Listen to this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech ye, brethren, therefore by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, 
which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable for us to resist sin. Is it always easy? No. No, it's not. We're told in the Word that it's not going to be easy, but we are told that with every temptation, there's going to be a back door. There's going to be an escape route. There's going to be a way to get out of it and not fall into that temptation. And it's reasonable. It's reasonable because He's been so good to us. He's been so wonderful to us. He's lavished so much upon us. And He's given us so much hope. How bright's that hope of yours this morning? Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank You for Your Word. We do praise You and thank You for the Christian hope, for the hope in the here and the now and how we see Your blessings all around us and in our lives and hope for what is to come. And it's not a hope. It's an ironclad guarantee that was purchased with the blood of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to let the hope of knowing Christ to fashion us more to be like Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.